Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening in with us today on our podcast, For the Sake of the Child. Our podcasts are brought to you by the Military Child Education Coalition, whose work is focused on ensuring quality educational opportunities for all military-connected children affected by mobility, family separation, deployments, and transition. Here at the MSEC, we want to ensure that every military child is college, workforce, and life ready. In our podcast, we will share your stories as we talk to military service members, professionals, parents, and military kids. Please like, share, and subscribe. And we appreciate your comments, questions, and ideas for topics that you would like to hear more about. We would like to take some time to say thank you to the Military Spouses Association at 29 Palms from all of us on the MSEC For the Sake of the Child podcast team for providing the funds for today's podcast. Your generous support allows us to share information, resources, and also build connection through shared stories and experiences, helping to provide military kids, their families, and the professionals who serve them the tools they need to help our military-connected children thrive. Welcome everyone to our podcast for the sake of the child. My name is Susan Sellers. I'm the spouse of an active duty service member, parent to three military kids, master parent-to-parent educator, and now podcast host at the Military Child Education Coalition. Today, we're going to be talking to Jenny Lynn Stroop about her family's experience with mental health and military life. Jenny Lynn Stroop is the Outreach Coordinator for the Stephen A. Cohen Military Family at Veterans Village of San Diego. She comes to this role as a seasoned military spouse who has spent her time at each duty station fostering community. Jenny Lynn is also a freelance writer who uses stories to bridge the gap between the civilian and military communities. She's passionate about being a bridge builder and sees her role as a military spouse as an opportunity to reach both communities. Jenny Lynn, thank you for agreeing to share your story with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. So I would love for you to start out by telling us a little bit about your sweet Navy family. So I am married to a Naval officer who's been in the Navy for almost 14 years. Um, yay, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm the mom to two elementary school age boys who are currently homeschooling. Super fun. Insert sarcasm here. Um, <laughs> we are currently stationed in San Diego. All right. Well, I know like a lot of military families, you know, you've had your fair share of transitions. Uh, yes, most of our transitions occurred on the East Coast, but our last PCS was out here to San Diego. So uh, we bounced back and forth between different bases in Virginia, which meant we bounced different houses within the same state, PCS to New York City, and then from New York City out to San Diego. Oh my goodness, you were definitely kind of hitting all the corners of the U.S., that's for, that's for sure. So I'm sure our audience can certainly uh, relate to that ping-pong moving style. It's certainly interesting how as military families, you know, we just consider that part of life. Mm-hmm. You and I have been talking as rewarding and as exciting as being the military can be. It's it's not without its difficulties. And one particularly challenge that comes to mind for a lot of families 
are the deployments that families face, and, and your family knows this all too well. In fact, your husband being in the Navy, and I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, just had just finished a seven-month boat cruise. Yes. Is, that, is that how you, okay. See, Army girl, I'm learning something new. <laughs> I love it. So he had just finished a seven-month cruise, and then he was assigned an arming posting, which called for him to be deployed then for nine months in Afghanistan. I'd like to kind of start talking about that time in your life. Can you sort of set the stage from, you know, he's finished up his cruise and he's getting ready to deploy, sort of lay out what what was going on with your family at that time? Yeah, so my husband returned from a seven-month traditional Navy deployment to meet our six-month-old on the pier. Had his two weeks of, you know, thank you for going on deployment. Here's your two weeks leave. And from that point on was really either back doing workups on the ship and or flying from the ship to a Midwest town uh, to work on the War of 1812 project that the Navy was on. Uh, so we really didn't see him all that much out after his two weeks off. And while he was in one of the Midwest cities working on this project, he got a call saying that someone from the waterfront in Norfolk had to take an IA billet uh, to Afghanistan. Congratulations, you're it. So he flew back home from that Midwest city, had about a month to wrap up his work on the ship, which was out to sea. So he flew directly from like Cleveland or somewhere out to the ship. And then July 1st, left for three months of training and then a nine-month deployment to Afghanistan with an army unit. So he was filling an individual augmentee billet. Obviously, there's no water in Afghanistan, so totally different than the, than the deployment he'd finished earlier that year. So it was really, as a Navy spouse, it was completely unexpected. It did not look like the deployment we had just finished, and that created a lot of extra fear and anxiety for me. Well, I, I mean, I can only imagine. So, you know, he's coming off the seventh-month cruise. You kind of got the the understanding of, of what the Navy is asking him to do, um, but it sounds like with a lot of military families, it still was quite the high tempo in terms of scheduling. And even though he's home, he's still very busy. And then uh, the next thing you know, he's he's headed for uh, for Afghanistan. Uh, and so now he's working with another branch in the military. And for our listeners that aren't military, um, it's they are though similar they do have their own differences and and nuances so i can imagine that that was a little stressful kind of being a navy spouse in a in an armed world and you also on top of this remind me you were were you moving also when all of this happened or um so we found out he'd been in afghanistan three ish months and we knew that at the end of that ia he was done with his like ship tour. They pulled him off the ship to do the IA. So when he came home, like he was up for a new set of orders. So we found out about three months into his Afghanistan tour that not only was he getting a different job when he came home, like we were PCSing to New York City from the Hampton Roads area of, of Virginia. So not very much alike. Nowhere I'd ever, I mean, I've been there on vacation, but nowhere I'd ever thought I'd live with two toddlers and a military husband. Uh, so yeah, it was um, very different. 
and unexpected. I'm sure. I can imagine going from a military community to an environment that, you know, wasn't heavy with maybe military support or a military presence. And I think your parents, did they live in the Hampton Roads area with you as well? Did you have family support there? Yes. So I grew up in the Hampton Roads area. So all of my friends and family were there. It was, I mean, I lived there most of my life outside of college and a job post-college. I'd always lived there. My parents were in the area. My boys were extremely close to my parents. That was really the the stability they had because they were both so little when Matthew was back and forth between trainings and deployments. My parents were the boys constant. So finding out that we were moving to a whole nother state all the way up 95 was a, was a little jarring to both my system and and theirs. And we moved 25 days after my husband's feet hit American soil. He landed back home July 1st of 2013 and the moving truck showed up for all of our stuff July 26th. Oh my goodness. I I would like to to act surprised, Um, (laughs) but you know, being in the the military community for as long as I have, this doesn't sound like an all too familiar situation, but I do want to delve into a little bit before you ended up moving to New York and and Matthew Mm -hmm. returning. You mentioned, you know, that you had grown up in the Hampton Roads area and that your parents were there and it sounded like you had a tremendous support system, which is very important for our, our military families, you know, because we create routines and ways to cope during a deployment, but we're still figuratively sort of holding our breath Mm -hmm. um, just because you just don't know what the future may bring during Mm -hmm. a particular deployment. And unfortunately for your family, on one particular day during the deployment, something actually did happen that ended up changing the course of not only your life, but also your family's life. Would you mind sharing kind of what happened? Yeah, so April 3rd, 2013, my husband happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when a vehicle-borne IED exploded in the province of Afghanistan he was in. At that time, it was the largest VBID that in that area, like during during the Afghanistan war. And so he was affected by the blast. And because he was an IA and not part of like a unit that was people who all like trained together, deployed together, would come home together to a base. He didn't really have like the basis for this is what happens when you're in that situation, like as far as aftercare. Like there was, you know, the group he was a part of were a whole bunch of IAs who were pulled from the Navy and the Air Force and other places to support this thing. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of like, this is what you do after that happens. Uh, So he went a couple of days without really seeking medical treatment. And it became very clear to me on the phone that as he was assuring me he was fine, he was not actually fine. And so I pushed him to go get checked out by medical. But even then, I mean, it wasn't like he was at a naval hospital stateside. <laughs> like he was still in southwestern Afghanistan. He, he was not injured physically. So he stayed and continued out the deployment. But I knew something was off. And admittedly, right before he came home, he said to me, you know, I think there are going to be some times when I need like some quiet 
Uh, we had two toddlers, so I wasn't really sure how <laughs> that was going to work for us all that well. And that was kind of another little little piece that I was like, hmm, because he's a very like go get him, real busy, like, and he's asking for peace and quiet wasn't really his MO. So yeah, April 3rd was a lot. <laughs> it, it sounds that way. It sounds like, uh, it, it, and for our listeners, he actually was eventually diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury or uh, T, TBI. Is yeah, that correct? MTBI. So his is mild traumatic brain injury. Okay, MTBI. Mm-hmm. So, and that was established shortly before he returned home. Is that correct? No, we actually didn't get a formal diagnosis until several years later. Okay. Um, they basically, you know, they were like, we're pretty sure you have a concussion. Okay. You've got some headaches. You're not sleeping well. It was kind of all the signs and symptoms of TBI, but he wasn't actually diagnosed until much later. I see. I see. Okay. So you're picking up on some things that are that are not fitting his personality, things that are just maybe, for lack of a better word, a little hinky over your phone conversations. And so when you're finally reunited, as we had discussed earlier, you guys moved to New York City. So you left a military community, left your support, your parents. Mm-hmm. And when your husband returned, the family dynamic changed. So instead of returning kind of to life as you knew it, something was different, not only with your relationship with him, but also Mm -hmm. his relationship with the kids. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, for one thing, like a lot of military families, I mean, we'd basically done two, two and a half years of just me and the kids. So we had our own routines and the way that we did things. And I knew which lovey went with which kid and which TV show this one would watch and the snacks and all the things. And those just weren't things he was familiar with. So, you know, it was confusing and frustrating for him and the kids to try to reestablish that father-son bond because he just didn't have any knowledge of what they were like. He left and, you know, our youngest had just turned one and our oldest was two and a half and he came back and they were a whole year older, you know, so they talked more and they walked more and they wanted different things than they had wanted when he was last home. My boys, they were just used to me. I'd always been there, you know, so it was, it was really hard for all four of us to try to figure out what it looked like to be a family of four, because moving to New York City was the first time all four of us had really lived together under one roof for any substantial amount of time. And we, we'd done a weekend, a week here and there. But I mean, this was he was returning from a deployment to be on shore duty. Like we were going to do the regular family thing. You go to work, you come home for the first time ever, you know, since both the kids were born. So it was just a, it was a, it was hard to navigate trying to figure out like what role each of us had and how we all came together as a family. And for me, uh, it was very difficult to let go of the reins of like, I'm used to doing all of this stuff. And so for him, it was kind of like, what's my place here? That was a difficult space to navigate for for quite a while. The military does a lot of briefs and things on reintegration. I was kind of under the impression that it was like this, okay, so you get two weeks palm leave. I don't know what you guys call it in the army, but you get two weeks of leave, like after you come home from a deployment, congratulations, you're reintegrated. Now now we're going to, you know, go back. Right. And that was not our experience. Reintegration didn't happen in two weeks. <laughs> 
Exactly. Sometimes it takes longer, depending on a particular family, depending on personalities, um, reintegrating or adjusting to going from a family of three to to a family of four can take time. But you had mentioned to me when we were planning this this podcast that in addition to reintegrating Matthew into the family and getting him on on the same page with routines and mm-hmm. stuff, there were other things that were starting to creep up to the forefront. Some symptoms or um, mood swings, things that were occurring that mm-hmm. were not hit from his typical behavior, the Matthew that you knew before he deployed. Mm-hmm. Can you share some of the things that you were starting to notice? Sure. Yeah. The big one was sleep. He was not, he was not a big fan of sleep, nor could he really like rest enough to do it. So even on nights where he would go to bed at a, a normal time, you know, his sleep was very restless. And so he never felt rested. That would snowball into, well, if I'm not going to rest, I'm just going to work more. And if I'm just going to work more that, and it was kind of this snowball effect of, you know, really like overworking and undersleeping to outrun all of the symptoms he was feeling. The the sleep thing was probably the biggest the biggest tip to me that something wasn't wasn't right. You know, it was like hours of like trying to zone out with TV and still not feeling ready for bed or, you know, his ability to get on a train at 5 a.m. to go to work and work till seven, eight o'clock at night and think nothing of it. Those were kind of some of the tips to me, which also made it hard to reintegrate because here I thought we were going to have this schedule, you know, this like, oh, we finally get to be a nine to five family and we weren't. So you're finding that he's pouring more of himself into to work, um, Mm -hmm. longer hours. Um, You had mentioned that he was maybe more impatient with particular situations that weren't common for him to to lose his patience over, you know, that, and that he was not wanting to be as engaging. Is that, is that correct? Because it sounds like he was sort of an outgoing, easygoing guy. And then when he returned, that dynamic sort of changed. Is that right? Yeah, he kind of had like, I guess, like a quicker trigger. He was, he's, he's always been great with kids and loves kids. And it was like, our kids would be too loud or not go to bed. And it was like zero to 60 on the why, why aren't they doing this? Why isn't this happening? Like what, you know, what's going on? And I was like, hmm, well, that's different, you know, because when he had been home and they were babies, he was like the dad laying on the couch, sitting there playing blocks and reading books. And it was like everything when we moved, everything seemed like more of a, a hot button issue. And they were toddlers. He became much more impatient with just kind of the pace of life, especially at home, which contributed to the working because work was fast. You know, he was in New York City in Midtown Manhattan, like going from meeting to meeting and the rush of the city and all of that energy and would come home and we didn't have the same hup too as the people in the city. His impatience started to show much more quickly and more forcefully than it had before. So how did you finally take that first step in in seeking help? Or was there a tipping point for you where you finally decided, okay, there's something that is not equaling uh, his behaviors with what I'm expecting? What was it that finally was the tipping point for you? 
You know, we tried a lot of things. First, let me say that because we were kind of one of one, uh, meaning like we were the only active duty Navy family in the area, healthcare access was not that great and not that easy, uh, especially for him because he's active duty and they typically go to a military treatment facility. And the closest one to us was two hours away. So trying to facilitate civilian care was particularly difficult. We tried to do some couples therapy and see if that would help like lessen the stress in the house and kind of bring us back together and help us reintegrate. That was good. And then it became very clear that both of us needed some individual help, that we could work on things as a couple. But, you know, we also both had some very real wounds from all of the deployment time. I do not like making phone calls at all. I don't even like to call for pizza. <laughs> it <laughs> makes me sweat profusely. So, but the and the idea of having to reach out and ask for help as far as like mental health when I really grew up with that wasn't something that was really talked about. You know, I really struggled with what, you know, what do I do and and how do I accomplish this? And I'm very fortunate that I have a community that is very well versed in that. And so when I said, hey, like I'm struggling with some of these things, a friend of mine, you know, offered to have me come to her house and and sit with her. And she literally held my hand while I dialed the number and, and told the receptionist all the things and, you know, got an appointment for treatment set up for myself. And so that, you know, I am forever grateful to that friend and for having community that is willing to talk about those things. There's so much that we don't know about uh, TBIs and PTSD. We're still, you know, we're still learning uh, mm -hmm. even, even today. And that these, you know, these symptoms that we're seeing, you know, some people may at the time may consider, well, these are normal stressors. You just moved. You've just been put mm -hmm. together back as a family. So, you know, and there is a certain stigma when it comes to the, to the phrase mental health. And so I think mm -hmm. the military is really trying to make strides to, desensitize that so that there are resources when people are ready that they're, they're going to engage them. And I love that, you know, it really only takes one friend, you know, that one friend that held your hand to help you to make that call, just to, mm -hmm. to take that first step and, and trying to, you know, navigate this to, to get to the bottom of it. And as you shared through this process, it, it, came out that Matthew was suffering from MTBI and as well as PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, so you had shared uh, in terms of talking about this, the phrase invisible wounds. And I know that we, we hear this a lot and, and, <laughs> and different things uh, when it comes to TBIs, but that you actually dislike this oh. phrase. And I would love for you to explain why. Why do you dislike this phrase? I loathe this phrase like a lot because for me, though my husband was not physically injured in that you could look at him and go, wow, he must have been in an explosion. His wounds were all but invisible. Like I could see that he wasn't himself. I could see the quick to anger. I could see the lack of sleep. I could see the tendency to overwork, you know, and the strains that those things put on our our relationship and our family life. 
So my experience with the signature wounds of post 9-11 service is that they are not invisible. Uh, the people closest to the people that suffer from them can see them clear as day. I would love to stop referring to these signature wounds as invisible because I think it does a disservice to the person who is struggling with them and to the people that, that live with and care for them because it's very clear that something is going on. Well, I think that is very, very powerful of you to share and something for all of us to consider, you know, because these symptoms, you know, they have a longevity that we we don't necessarily understand right now. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned, you know, they're ripple effects caused Mm -hmm. by these wounds. And I want to kind of talk a little bit now about how this affected your voice in particular. What did you see as a result of the deployments and Matthew coming back with a MTBI. You know, I think as as far as my boys go, it was really one. The big transition was we went from a family of three to a family of four overnight, and they were really too little to grasp all that went into that. You know, it was a fun. We went to the airport with signs and this guy got off the airplane in uniform and they got to hug him. And then all of a sudden he was back. That was a transition. Moving 25 days later was a transition. Having Matthew like try to, you know, do the dad thing, like play trucks and do all of it was a transition for my, for my boys. And then being around us as a couple trying to navigate the things that I could see very clearly as far as what was going on with my husband my boys really started to struggle with more and more transition. It was like every time something changed, I could see a change in them. And it was everything from little stuff, you know, like something in our routine wouldn't go right. You know, like Tuesday nights, we got pizza at Whole Foods because that's what we did, you know, and there would be a Tuesday night that We didn't go to Whole Foods for whatever reason and get pizza. And it was like, even those little things started to affect both my kids because at two and three years old, their little bodies had already been through so much transition that they didn't understand. Each thing that happened kept adding to that. And they were little, so they didn't have words for what that felt like or what that looked like. And so we started to see, you know, some acting out and some regression, you know, kids that had slept through the night for years, I thankfully had really good sleepers, like all of a sudden stop sleeping. And at 3am, there was a child tapping, tapping me on the shoulder because he'd had a bad dream or just because he was wide awake. And so, you know, it was little things at first, but with each transition we had, and especially when we moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, that really seemed to be the tipping point for my oldest son, mostly because even when we lived in New York, we were still just a car ride away from where he grew up, from the stability he knew. And he was smart enough at seven years old to know that the West Coast is nowhere near the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And that that quick trip down 95 to my parents' house, where he really considers like home, 
wasn't so available. And so we did, we started seeing, you know, he was seven and we'd see three and four year old behaviors like a tantrum. And so that was kind of a cue to me, like, hmm, I think everybody's feeling, feeling the effects of what it's been like to live such a fast paced and transitional military life for the past couple of years. Sure. And it actually, in listening, it, it's interesting. It, it almost sounds like in some ways, the boys were exhibiting some of the same symptoms you were seeing in Matthew. Whether it was not reacting well to a transition or perhaps they were picking up on the stress in the environment themselves, but their behavior was regressing, you know, not sleeping. Matthew was not sleeping, reacting atypical to a situation, and that's also being seen um, mm-hmm. in your husband. So it's it's interesting, it almost sounds like the boys were mirroring some of the same symptoms or some of the same situations that you and your husband were going through. So I can't even imagine at seven years old, you're moving further and further away from what you can t- consider your support system mm-hmm. um, with more and more change. So how did you then navigate path for seeking assistance for your older son? I will say, you know, first and foremost, I think realizing that he needed help was really one of those things as a mom that I was like, oh my gosh, you know, it was like all of a sudden one day it was like this (laughs) bright light, like, oh wow, this is what it looks like for a kid to struggle with all of the things, you know, I knew what it was like at 33 to struggle with all the things, but to watch it in my son. And so we started down the path of, of looking for therapy for him. And unfortunately, right now the military system is overloaded. We have a lot of people and thankfully seeking mental health. And also we don't have a system that can handle it. So we're handle it within the military community, you know, so for us, we started with the the naval hospital out here and they were full and then they told me they needed a referral and so we got a referral even though as civilians we don't actually have to have a mental health referral and took that to the hospital because that's what they said they needed and then my husband literally walked around with like a printed out referral for my son at the hospital and went from department to department trying to find somebody who would give us the answer on how to get in. And it was like, he just kept being, oh, you need to go see this department. Oh, you need to go see this department. And honestly, it was really defeating because we continued to watch our son like deteriorate. And it was like, what can we do? And there aren't as many child therapy providers as there are adults. Finally, we were able to connect with a friend of a friend who happens to be a military spouse herself and so understood the military lifestyle really well and was a child therapist. And we were able to get my son, you know, the help he needed, but it took six months from the time we started calling and looking and walking around the hospital to getting him in somewhere. Uh, So it was not an easy process for sure. It certainly doesn't sound that way. And it, I know now working for the, the Cohen Clinic, 
and knowing that they provide services not only for veterans, but also for military families and kids specifically, I'm sure, you know, this resource would have been so helpful during that time. I'm sure it probably helps you to value uh, working for an organization like that even more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, had the Cohen Clinic been open at the time that we were looking for services for my son, they would have been my first stop. And I don't say that as their outreach coordinator. I say that (laughs) as a mom. And who, and as someone who has seen the good work of the services they provide, we were very fortunate when we were stationed in New York to have my husband be able to seek his first round of PTSD treatment through the Cohen Clinic at NYU. And so we had had a really good experience with them. And for sure, if they had been open in 2017, when we were walking around with the referral, we would have called them them first because they they do they get this lifestyle and out here in San Diego I will say it's mostly because they are who they treat I'm a military spouse and I now work there uh, we have several military spouses on our team we have people that grew up as military kids we have veterans themselves who now you know serve at the Cohen Clinic so they're intimately familiar with this life and they do. They well, just provide great service. Well, and, and I think that's so important is to understand this life because it is it is unique, you know, and it, it definitely is relevant to the struggles that either veterans or service members or active duty service members or families, you know, are facing. So I have to say, though, I'm listening to your story and everything, and I feel like it would be so reasonable for you to have some sort of resentment towards the injuries that your husband has sustained, because this this really has been quite the journey for your entire family. But as we shared earlier, you know, you're a writer as well. And then you had a blog where you actually wrote that you had learned and grown as a person from this experience. And I I have to have you share what you meant (laughs) that you learned from this experience, because I I think that takes a a lot of strength to be able to share that. And I want you to share that with our listeners. Uh, Well, thank you. First, I'd love to say I was resentment free. I am not. (laughs) Um, However, living with someone who suffers from PTSD and seeing the effects of that in his life and then subsequently on the lives of our family taught me a lot of things. You know, there's a lot of talk about resilience and things in the military community. And, um, you know, walking through that season with my family, I learned about asking for help. Um, I learned about being able to give that help back to other people in similar positions. I learned that I could do a lot of things like make the phone call that I didn't previously think that I could do. Um, And so really, though it was really crummy, you know, I think what's come out of my experience with PTSD is that there is um, a large capacity for growth. General Mattis talks a lot about um, post-traumatic growth and now working for a mental health clinic. You know, that's really what we offer in opportunity is recovery. These signature wounds are not the end-all be-all of a service member's career or of their lifestyle. There is hope and recovery, and that goes for all of the people 
involved. I learned a lot of things about myself and I've come out on the other side of having lived through some of the worst of it, stronger, more resilient, more willing to ask for help. So yeah, uh, PTSD taught me growth (laughs) and how to grow. Well, I, I have to say, I think what you're sharing, it resonates with so many in our military community. And I'm just, I admire your desire to to share and to go beyond just encouraging people, you know, through your blogs, through working as the outreach, because as you mentioned, you know, it's really important to change the narrative and to alter the way we talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, I, I like that phrase, post-traumatic growth, because we still are fighting the stigma that goes with these mm-hmm. signature wounds. And I know that's something that you're super passionate about and trying to kind of change the narrative uh, when it comes to not only helping our service members, but also for helping our families as well. So this podcast, is, as you know, is about telling stories. Do you have any final inspirational story or message that you would like to share with our listeners? I think for me, the greatest thing I've learned both as a military spouse and having the experience that I have as a military spouse is just the importance of of talking. You know, I came on here today and and I actually became an outreach coordinator because I know that there are other people like me mm-hmm. who have never heard someone say they struggled with these things. Thankfully, there is a lot of movement toward destigmatization of these signature wounds and there is a lot more emphasis on help but there still isn't a ton of talking about it especially on the on the family side uh, our service members get to sit through a lot of briefs and a lot of videos but on the family side it's really that you know we we do what we do like we just show up every day and that's just what we do and And for me, it has been uh, so healing for myself to share about my story and my family's story. And also in doing that, be able to open the door for someone else who's struggling with the same thing, but was too afraid to go first. So for me, it's, it's been learning to go, go first and telling that and opening the door to someone else being able to say, Hey man, that happens in my house too. What did you do when you were in that situation? Where do I go from here? So I think, you know, as a writer, telling stories is my jam. Like, I love telling stories because I've found that through telling stories, uh, people really come together and community really gets stronger. And, And I think that as a military spouse, there's just such great service in that to our fellow spouses and families. Jenny Lynn. I just want to, I just want to thank you for being so brave today, sharing something just as personal as you have as this experience. It takes a lot of courage and I'm very grateful that you were just willing to put your heart out there and that you're still putting your heart out there to support others. And I also believe that it only takes one voice to make a difference for someone to go first. And I'm grateful that you're pushing the fight for mental health down the right path. We're lucky to have you. I know Cohen at VVSD is lucky to have you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, for those of you that are interested in learning more about the Cohen Network, 
we're going to include not only the website for the Cohen Veteran Network, but also for the Stephen A. Cohen Military Family at Veterans Village of San Diego. The Cohen Network has currently 17 clinics across the United States that provides a variety of mental health resources for service members as well as family members. Also, if you would like to read more of Jenny Lynn's story, we're going to make sure to post her blog as well. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe, and we appreciate your comments, questions, and ideas for topics that you'd like to hear more about. Have a blessed day. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous support provided by the Military Spouses Association at 29 Palms. Thank you for making a difference in the lives of military children. I want to thank you again for listening to our podcast, For the Sake of the Child. We would like to invite you to visit our website at www.militarychild.org. Like the MSEC on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Please join us again next time as we share more stories that impact our military-connected kids.